Have you ever heard the hymn? Well, it's actually a chorus. Father, I lift my hands to thee. Have you ever heard that? It's just a short chorus. Father, I lift my hands to thee. No other help I know. The reason I bring it up is because I heard it yesterday. I thought, what a nice chorus. What a nice idea. What nice lyrics. Written as a plaintive song of a man reaching out to God, lifting his hands to God because there's no other help. And so I went online to find out more about the song, who wrote it, and what the lyrics were. And I found a video, found a couple of videos of people singing it. And every one of them did not sing the melody. Every one of them were people showing off by singing that song. It was funny, one of them referred to the song and referred to how well it was sung by this other fellow, so they brought the other fellow forward, and he said, um, uh, sing with me, and then he improvised and riffed all over the place. There was no way that anybody was going to sing with him, and when it was over, everybody applauded wildly for his singing, and then I read the comments in the comment section of YouTube, which I very seldom do, and all of the comments across the board were how great the singer was. And I thought, that's not the point of the song. The point of the song is, Father, I lift my hands to thee because I know no other help. I know nowhere else to go. I'm, I'm driven to you alone. And I'm sure that when Wesley came up with those lyrics, he was not thinking this will make a great performance piece for somebody who will someday be applauded for singing it. So I'm reminded of a, a video that I was sent a few months ago. The song was How Great Thou Art, a song that I, I dearly love. How Great Thou Art. The lyrics of it just extol the virtues of God. How God has done everything and how great you are, God. But the video was of Carrie Underwood, you remember her from American Idol, and Vince Gill. The two of them were singing it together. And oh, they carried on, and oh, they sang, and to my estimation, oversang the song. And all the comments afterwards were how much they loved Carrie Underwood and Vince Gill and how great Vince was and how good Carrie sang and how, oh, can you believe how well those two blended together? And I thought, that's not the point of this song. This song is about all praise to God, but because the song wasn't sung, it was performed, all the praise was going to the performers. I say that because I'm contrasting it with Luann and Steve up here singing this song. And I liked the fact that when they finished singing, even though occasionally it's right to applaud, somebody plays a song and it's well done and you applaud, but everybody just sat quietly and thought about what they had just heard. Because the person who was extolled in that song was Christ. And nobody afterwards thought, oh, that Luann. Man, she, oh, that's Steve. Whoa. Everybody thought, oh, that Christ. And that's how these songs are supposed to be. That's why I like church musicians so much. 
church musicians know the difference between playing music for the glory of God and playing music for the glory of themselves. They're worshiping God, they're extolling the virtues of God, and they're not trying to bring any glory to themselves. Now, having said that about the humility of church musicians, I'm now going to brag on one of our church musicians. Because Danielle, the first couple weeks that she played piano here, I got everybody to... uh, to applaud her a couple of times. Look at her, young girl. She could be doing anything. She could be anywhere. Yay for her, good for her. She didn't want that. She didn't like that. She said, don't do that. She corrected me. She didn't hit me. (laughs) But she... (laughs) I'm sorry. (laughs) But she corrected me because she didn't want to be the center of that attention. She didn't want to be glorified. She uses her gifts for God's glory. Tom, all these years playing guitar, 15 plus years of showing up and playing his guitar, he's never once said, look at me. I've heard Tom play. I know what Tom can do with six strings. He doesn't want to do that. He just wants to serve the congregation so that we can sing about the glory of God. I can count on two hands the number of Sundays that Tom did not have his guitar here to play for us. Never has he ever come to us and said, pay me. And yet he shows up here with his guitar every week. So I'm saying all this just because there's such a huge difference between people who use church as a platform to perform so that they can get the glory and they can become famous and they can sell their CDs afterwards and they can put their videos on YouTube and all the glory goes to those singers. There's a huge difference between that and genuinely worshiping God with the gifts that God has given you. And if he's given you the gift of music, then you ought to be using it for his glory. He's the one that gifted you with the ability The same way that he gifts people to teach, or he gifts people to help, or he gifts people to give, he gifts people to share their musical talents with others within the congregation. And I'm just so very happy that GCA has been so well gifted. And I'm proud of all of you. So thank you for sharing your gifts with us. Because you showed everybody this morning, whether you know it or not, you showed everybody how to do it right. And I appreciate that. Turn to 2 Corinthians 4. We are going to start back at verse 1 again because Paul is going to use this phrase, we do not lose heart, a couple of times in this chapter. And when you read the chapter from beginning to end, you really see that thematically, Paul is continuing to say, we do not lose heart. He's going to list some of the difficulties and the persecutions that he has gone through for being a minister of the new covenant. And as you can imagine, especially in that first century environment, especially in that Jewish environment, especially in that law-keeping mosaic environment, The things that Paul is saying are truly, genuinely shocking, much more so than we feel it today 
were kind of used to the Pauline language, but the things he was saying were really resisted. He was stoned outside of Lystra and left for dead. Okay, that's resistance. Five times beaten with lashes. That's resistance. People genuinely hated what he was saying. The people who were believing that Caesar was the only God on earth who should be worshipped hated the fact that Paul was saying only God should be worshipped and that Christ is God and that Christ deserves worship. Well, so you can see the resistance immediately coming from the Roman government. You can see the resistance coming from the Jews. You can see the resistance coming from the Gentiles who believed in a whole pantheon of gods and demigods and gods who would interact with human beings. There were gods for every aspect of life. And then Paul comes along and says, there's only one God and Christ is his son. And he alone deserves to be worshipped. And your idols of stone and your idols of metal and your handmade idols mean nothing. They are powerless. The only power in the universe is the power that belongs to the God of Israel. You can see why people would resist that. Because they resist the fact that he continues to be a minister of the new covenant. That's my point. And he's going to list these persecutions and the ways that he was struck down and the ways that he, he's ultimately going to say, I carry about in my body the dying of Christ because his own body was being persecuted and stoned and struck until he used the word stigmata. He said, I, I carry about in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus Christ. He saw the marks, the scars that were left in his body as a mark of the fact that he had been chosen by Christ to be a minister of the new covenant. So as Micah said this morning, there's persecution that comes along with Christianity. And yet, despite the persecution, he keeps saying, but we don't lose heart. We keep going. We persevere. We're sure that the problems of this life, the afflictions of this world, are nothing when compared to the glory that's going to be revealed in us. That's what Paul says. In fact, despite being stoned, despite being jailed, despite being in the deep for a day and the night and nearly drowned, despite being oftentimes hungry, despite the fact that he is persecuted time and time again he refers to all of that collectively as these light afflictions Paul after everything he had been through when comparing that to what Christ was going to do ultimately in redeeming his body in making him everlasting in making him a a glorious person and I, I don't think I'm overusing that word that we are going to share in the ever-living body and spiritual well-being that Christ promised us, that God has prepared for us since before the foundation of the world, he is intending to glorify us. He has sanctified us, he has justified us, and he is going to glorify us, says Paul. And compared to that, Paul (laughs) argues, the things we have to go through in this lifetime are just light affliction. So, 
do not lose heart. Verse 1 of chapter 4, therefore, since we have this ministry, the ministry of the new covenant, as we have received mercy, we do not lose heart. It was merciful of him to give us the strength and the perseverance to continue against these afflictions, against the people who would persecute, despite the fact that people try to shut down Christianity and get the ministers of Christianity to just shut up and go away. Despite that, it's merciful of God to keep us through the afflictions, but I think it's also Paul's intention to say it's merciful of God to even make us ministers of his new covenant God did not have to choose anybody God did not have to tell anybody about himself but he chose to and he chose the people that he would reveal himself to and if he has revealed himself to you that's an act of mercy on the part of God he did not choose you did not instruct you, did not introduce himself to you because you were just so worth it to him, that you improved him so much. He was up there in heaven eternally and perfectly content all by himself, perfectly complete within himself, not lonely, not looking for a friend, not needing a buddy. He made human beings and then chose human beings and revealed himself to human beings for one reason only, the glorification of himself. So that through all the ages to come, he can point to us and say, look what I did. I saved these people, these wretches, these worms, these sinners. I brought them to myself and I have justified them, and I have sanctified them. I have separated them. I have glorified them. I've made them a part of my heaven for my purposes, for my glory. He chose to do all that. So it was merciful that he would even allow Paul to be a minister of the new covenant. And I try never, never to forget that. I have the the privilege, and I mean the word privilege, I have the privilege of handling God's word. I have the privilege of teaching people what God said and how the Bible works. And, and I try to never, never let it puff me up and make me think, I must be something. Look what God has done for me. I recognize that this is a privilege and that at any point he wants to, he can make me lay down and shut up. He proved that last year. At any point that he decides to raise up some other voice, he can do that. That's one of the reasons that I've said for all these 15 years that if you hear one day that Jim got hit by a bus, show up here the next Sunday because whatever gift he has uh, given me to teach, he can give that same gift to anybody he wants. And the Sunday after I'm hit by a bus and incapacitated or hopefully dead, I don't want to get hit by a bus and then live. But the week after that's happened, God is perfectly capable of teaching his saints and bringing his saints together because it's all about his glory. The same way I was talking about musicians before. 
and saying they shouldn't be performing for their glory. The same thing applies to preachers. Preachers should never be performing for their glory. They should be serving God. They should be serving the people of God, and they should never get puffed up because God is able to take you down. I've seen God just take people out of the ministry, and usually I'm grateful that he did it. But I've seen God just make men sit down and shut up. But he's capable of raising up anybody he wants because when he gathers his saints, he is going to feed his sheep. He never brings his sheep together and then sets them about to get hungry. He never leaves them to themselves and then says, go ahead, try to feed yourself. When he gathers his people, he gathers his people on purpose, and then he feeds his sheep. And just because I'm not here, or anyone's not here, God will still faithfully feed his sheep. So should you be discouraged? Should you ever worry? Should you ever lose heart? Should you ever feel like God has abandoned us or you individually? Well, Paul is saying, no, because we have received mercy. And since we've already received this mercy from God, we can be confident that God, who does not change, brought us into this state of mercy because he intends to complete the act, which is your glorification. There's just no way that I can be convinced that God starts the process of saving people and then somewhere along the line gets bored, gets tired, loses interest, and says, oh, never mind. If God begins the process, he's going to complete the process. If he puts his spirit in you, it is the sure and certain promise that he is going to redeem you eternally and you are going to end up in his presence. He doesn't change his mind. He doesn't change his intention. If he gives mercy to you, rather than giving you the justice that you deserve, then you ought to take heart. You ought to know exactly what Micah read for us this morning out of chapter 8 of the book of Romans. You ought to know that all things are indeed working together for good to those who love God, who are the called according to his purpose. He has a purpose in the things that he's doing. And if in his purpose he has called you and he has revealed himself to you and he has been merciful to you, then you can count on it that he's going to get you the rest of the way. He's going to get you all the way to glory. Now along the way, there are going to be people who try to stop that. There are going to be devils and demons who try to stop that. There are going to be governments that try to stop that. But none of them, none of them have the power that God has to complete his intention every single time. So if you encounter any of the troubles, if you encounter any of the persecution, if you feel that, just know that God has given you mercy and therefore he's going to take you all the way through the rest of it and therefore don't lose heart. It's easy to lose heart. 
it's easy to get cynical. I read all these comments by very, very cynical people. For some reason, they all hang out in the comment section of YouTube. And I read these very cynical, very sarcastic, very worldly comments. And I don't know how these people live. I don't know how they survive. I don't know how they get up in the morning and face the world having no hope, expecting the worst every day. They have no hope. And yet we have this guarantee from God that we will persevere, that we will make it all the way. And whatever we face today, we face today. Therefore, since we have this ministry, as we received mercy, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced the things hidden because of shame, not walking in craftiness or adulterating the word of God, but by the manifestation of truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving, that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord, and ourselves as your bondservant for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, light shall shine out of the darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Okay, I want you to concentrate on that phrase for just a moment because Paul is going to call that a treasure. Not an earthly treasure, not gold and silver, not the kind of treasure that will make you famous and make you powerful among men, but the light that shines out of darkness, the light that comes from God alone. He is the energy. He is the source that creates light In a universe full of darkness, that same God cast that light of God into his own called people, which brings about the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Now think about that for a moment. We're talking about the light that no man approaches. We're talking about the light that lightens All of the universe. We're talking about the single one who made everything and lit everything, who is the energy source of the whole universe. God can at any point say, let there be, and things simply are. And at some point in your life, he said to you, let there be light. And you were enlightened within. And suddenly you understood Two very important things. You understood that God is glorious and you're not. And then you realize that the glory of God can be found in the face of Christ. I really had difficulty with this when I was young. 
growing up in the Lutheran church as I did, they talked a lot about God. All the sermons were about God. Everything I heard was about God. God, God did. But when I would ask questions like, well, where does Jesus fit into all this? Because this is about God, and I get it that God is glorious, and I get it that God deserves worship, and that we pray to God, but then where is Jesus in all this? And I have to say that the Lutherans that I grew up with, at least, were not very good at answering that question. What the Bible tells us is that Jesus is not only the Son of God, but he's the very image of God. Because, again, let's be honest, you have no way, you have no capacity within yourself to conceive of what God is. Yeah, Joni's shaking her head like, I I can't begin. If you were just left with, okay, imagine God, not only the maker of everything, but the sustainer of everything, the source of everything, who is a spirit, and yet who speaks of himself in these anthropomorphic ways, just so that we have some comprehension of what he's like, the one who always existed, how are you going to begin to conceive of such a a being? And so how merciful, how gracious of him to send his only begotten son so that in the face of his son, we could see everything we need to know about God, at least sufficient to get us from here to our eternal destiny. That when we look at Christ, the very image of God, we see in him the righteousness of God. We see the holiness of God. We even see the eternality of God. But we see it in human form. And then he, having risen from the dead, rises up into the clouds and is seated currently at the right hand of heaven, which means there's somebody kind of like us sitting at the right hand of God. Okay, that helps me. Now I know that there is an intermediary who who knows what it's like to be human, who was tempted in all ways like we are, and yet without sin. Somebody who knows what it's like to suffer pain. Someone who knows what it's like to be hungry. Someone who knows what it's like to get tired. Someone who knows what it's like to go through the pains of this life. That very one who encountered all that and experienced all that became my substitute, took the sin debt in my place, and then rose up to the right hand of God and is sitting there as my advocate. And it's good to know that there's someone who, for lack of a better word, if I was really urban, I would say, who really feels me, man, who really knows what it's like to be human. So in the face of Christ, I can find the glory of God. Now that doesn't begin to exhaust the glory of God, but at least I have a touchstone. I have a place to begin. I have an approach now. And so despite the fact that the Lutherans never really explained Jesus and how he fit into the Trinity and how important he was to our salvation Despite that, I find in him now 
because I've read the Bible and understood the things that God was trying to tell us. I understand that Christ is truly my all and in all and that in worshiping and praising and praying by his name, I haven't in any way diminished the glory of God. What I've done is expanded on the glory of God. And I only know all that because the light of God spoke it into me. I only know anything about God, anything about Christ, anything about his spirit because the God who spoke from heaven spoke light into me so that I would understand the glory of God in the face of Christ. I said all that to get to verse 7, but we have this treasure, this light of God, this knowledge of God. This vision of Christ and the glory of God. This treasure we have in earthen vessels. Now the Bible speaks of our bodies since we were made out of the dust and the clay originally. And since we go back ashes to ashes, dust to dust, we are referred to throughout the Bible as just being earthen vessels. Clay pots. I argue that most of us are cracked pots. We're just broken vessels, and yet we have this glorious treasure in us. But we have this treasure, this knowledge in earthen vessels. Why? So that the surpassing greatness of the power may be of God and not from ourselves. This is why last week I spent so much time talking about the theology of you Versus the theology of the glory of God. The right theology, the biblical theology, says all of the glory belongs to God. And God was so sure, so certain to make sure that that's how it turned out. That he gave us the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. This wonderful treasure he gave us in earthen vessels. So that all the glory would go to God. So that we would never start thinking highly of ourselves. So that we would never start thinking, I figured God out. I know these things about God because I'm that smart. I read the books. I did the studying. Me, 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 me. I chose Jesus. I made him Lord and Savior. I did all these things. No, Paul writes specifically We have this treasure in these earthen vessels that the surpassing greatness of the power may be of God and not from ourselves. But then Paul says that because we're in these earthen vessels, there's going to be pain. There's going to be trouble. There's going to be affliction. It's part of the package. Look at the rest of the sentence. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We are perplexed, but not despairing. Isn't that a remarkable thing? It really, truly is. I talk to Christians all the time. I talked to Don Tyndall for an hour yesterday. And I said, uh, how you feeling? How you doing? And he said, well, this past couple of weeks, I've been so weak that I could only go to the church just up the road. I wanted to go to church somewhere, and there was a little Baptist church, and and I went up there. I won't tell you what he said about the preaching, but he said, (laughs) 
but he said that's, that's where he's gone because he's so weak at this point. And yet, when you talk to him, he's happy, he's funny. He told me jokes. Because despite the fact that he's afflicted, he's not crushed by it. He's not destroyed by it. I, I looked back here and I saw Dwight sitting. I think none of us would want to go through what Dwight's going through right now. I saw a lot of people shaking their head. We don't want to go through what Dwight's gone through. Look at Dwight right now. Turn around and look at Dwight. Look at him. He's smiling and laughing. <laughs> smiling and laughing. Why? Because he's not finding his satisfaction in his earthen vessel. The earthen vessel is falling apart day by day. He finds his joy. He finds his purpose in the fact that he knows that God is for him. And if God is for him, who can be against him? Even his own decaying earthen vessel can't be against him. This is all part of God's eternal plan that we are going to be in these earthen vessels and they're going to get sick and they're going to get old and they're going to decay and they're going to go back to the dust. And that's all God's plan. So we shouldn't be surprised when that happens to us. I'm real mad at my body right now. My body has not been cooperating this week. Those of you who were here, <laughs> I saw Karen go, oh, man, no, no. Those of you who were here on Wednesday night know that I had to sit down to teach. I've got a bruise on my leg and my foot right now you wouldn't believe. Why? Because I tried to kill a wasp. <laughs> No, I actually did kill the wasp and fell off the ottoman I was standing on to get to the ceiling to kill the wasp and bruised my leg something terrible. It would have been better to be stung, yeah. But no, I have to kill that wasp. My body and I aren't cooperating. I used to be able to remember things just bang, on the spot, remember everything. Now I go, hey, you know how that, um, um, you know, that, um, oh, never mind. It's ridiculous. Me and my body aren't getting along. At some point, me and my body are just going to part ways. <laughs> I'm just going to give up on my body, and, and I'm going to leave. I'll show it. <laughs> but that's God's plan. Because we have this treasure in these earthen vessels that the surpassing greatness of the power, the might, the almighty power of God may be with God and not from ourselves. We are afflicted in every way. Now, granted, I started by talking about Paul and all the things that Paul went through because I think Paul is being very personal here when he's saying we are afflicted. He was talking about himself. The stonings, the beatings, the, the imprisonments, the hunger, the left in prison, all of that. He's been through. We're afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not despairing. Okay, I find that word perplexed interesting because I get like that. Have you ever heard yourself saying to God, what is this about? Why am I going through this? I've been doing pretty good. And then this happens. Why? 
There are lots of things in this life that just perplex me. People I love who are suffering. I'm thinking of my mom right now. I think, why? Why? And I have to just turn it over to, because God. He decided. He chose this. This is the path my mom is taking because for some reason God decided this would be good. Otherwise, not everything works together for good to those who are called according to his purpose. In other words, I'd have to say that God made a mistake and that, and that I know better than God. And I could instruct God if he would just listen to me and if he could do more things the way that I would approve of. But he doesn't. He does things his way, which I sometimes find perplexing. Anybody else find it perplexing? Dealing with God is perplexing. And yet, not despairing. That's exactly right. Paul is so clever, he exactly described it. I'm perplexed by what happened. I was laying on the floor in my sunroom with my beat-up leg, laying there after hitting shoulder first onto the concrete ground, laying there going, what is this about? But I didn't despair. I knew that I was still going to get up somehow, and I was still going to be preaching that night and I got up and put an ace bandage on my leg and lidocaine pads to control the pain and I got here sat down in a chair and taught from Daniel didn't despair but I was definitely perplexed and then look at verse 9 we are persecuted yeah we are persecuted but not forsaken and that's an interesting phrase because In many ways, I think Christianity to to this day, the persecution continues to increase, but I think we don't know anything about genuine persecution, not the kind of Pauline persecution, not the kind of persecution that's going on in the Middle East right now, which, by the way, we bombed Syria this week. Pay attention to the Middle East. I keep saying it. I've been saying it for years and years and years. 30 years I've been saying, watch the Middle East. Anyway, that was free, and we're (laughs) bombing Syria. But anyway... Sometimes we are persecuted beyond measure, beyond understanding. When I read about today in Egypt, there was a Christian service going on for Palm Sunday. You all know already that Palm Sunday is not biblical, right? Okay, but on the church calendar, today is Palm Sunday. And there was a Palm Sunday service. And a terrorist burst in and several people died and... There were several bombings. Okay, that's real, genuine persecution. And even though that kind of persecution goes on, I don't believe those people were forsaken. Hmm. I think if you're going to die anywhere, church is a good place to do it. Hmm. I'm not starting a cult. I'm not saying drink the Kool-Aid. I'm not saying come to church and let's all die together. Let me tell you a quick story. My friend Ron, his grandfather was a preacher. And he was up in his 90s and had retired from preaching. And one Sunday morning, they called him from the pulpit to come up and and preach. You've done it for years and years and years and years. Come up and say a few words. And he stood up in the pulpit, preached, and dropped dead. 
And I said, that's the way to go. That's the way to do it. Declaring God, reading from the Bible, and going to heaven. That's the way to do it. We're not ever forsaken despite the persecution, despite the difficulties of this life. We are never forsaken by the Spirit of God. And I would argue we are never forsaken by the saints of God. That's one of the important aspects of Christianity and the Christian church is that we are a community who take care of each other and lift each other up. When Paul was stoned and left outside of Lystra, left for dead, what do you read then? The disciples came and took his body and took him back and, and healed him. Because the saints of God are part of the body of Christ and we collectively take care of each other even during our persecutions. So we're persecuted, but we're not forsaken. We're struck down, but not destroyed. Always, verse 10 always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus. Now, I, I said to you earlier that Paul refers to the scars on his body as the stigmata, as the marks of Christ, he calls them. And he may be referring to that here, always carrying about in the body the dying of Christ, but I think he's saying something more important than that. He's saying that if we reckon ourselves as being in Christ when Christ died, then we died with him. That's standard Pauline theology. Because the second half of the sentence is that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our bodies. So Christ died, Christ resurrected, Christ died, and then Christ lived. And he said, if we recognize in ourselves the dying of ourselves, then we recognize the life of Christ taking up residence in us. Okay, let me make that simpler. How many of you would say you're different now than you were 10 years ago? Okay, so who gets the glory for that? You? No. Christ who has changed you. Christ who has inhabited you, who has enlightened you, who has taught you, who has brought you along on this Christian walk, he's responsible for the fact that you have changed. And the more you have died, because Christ died first, and the more you have died to yourself, the more Christ has been raised up in your body, raised up in your life, glorified in the things that you do so that Christ's life lives in you. That's the very essence of what Christian baptism is. That we go under the water signifying that we are dying to ourselves. And then as long as the preacher doesn't hold us under too long, we come up out of the water to walk in the newness of life. And Paul makes that correspond with the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Christ. So we ourselves take on the death of Christ so that we can take on the life of Christ. And in that way, we are always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are constantly being delivered over to death. That's a tough phrase. But I don't think he's saying everybody who's alive 
because in a moment he's going to contrast that with the life of Jesus. And the spirit of Jesus, the life of Jesus, does not reside in everybody. So I think he's using the word live here in that eternal sense. We who have the life of Christ manifested in our body, we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So those of us who have the life of Christ in us are constantly in the process of dying to ourselves so that the life of Christ is the life that we live. Let me read it all as a section now and you'll see Paul's argument. Starting at verse 6. For God, who said, light shall shine out of the darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the surpassing greatness of the power may be of God and not from ourselves. We are afflicted. In every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not despairing. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. For we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So, death works in us, but life in you. Another astounding contrast from Paul. I think he's speaking personally here, and he is saying to the Corinthians, I am among the living, who he just referred to. I'm among the living, therefore death is constantly with me so that Christ is lifted up in glory, so that the sufficiency of Christ is made obvious in my life. But to you, the fact that I'm in this process of dying to self and living for Christ, but you, you're dead. You're dead in your trespasses and sins. And now that Christ has come to you, he's bringing life to you. So even as we're dying for your sake, you're living. So death works in us, but life works in you. But having the same spirit of faith, according to what is written, I believed, therefore I spoke. We also believe, therefore also we speak. That's why we do what we do. That's why we promote the Bible. That's why we talk to people about the things of Christ. Because our boldness, our assurance, does not come from the fact that we think we are sufficient in and of ourselves. We are constantly dying to ourselves. But then as the life of Christ and the spirit of faith is manifested in us, it gives us the boldness to go forward and speak the things of Christ, knowing full well that persecution is coming. 
if under any other circumstances, if like I said, come join my club, what do you do in your club? It's Fight Club. We don't talk about Fight Club. Okay, so let's pick a different club. <laughs> my son enjoyed that. If I said, come and join my club, oh, what do you do at your club? We get persecuted all the time, and it's really painful. You'd say, no, thanks. I'm going to join another club. I'm going to go do scouting or something. But I don't want to be in your club. Christianity is exactly that. Come be a Christian. Come die to yourself. Come encounter the persecution that comes along with Christianity. Why would anybody ever accept that deal? It fascinates me that Luke wrote the book of Acts and talks constantly about we. We went here, we went there, we went there. And then we went to jail, and then we were driven out of that city, and then we were stoned, and then we were, come join us. No! And yet people do. And yet people did. Why? Because it can't be of themselves. Logically, humanly, nobody would sign up for that deal. And yet people do. <laughs> yet people did. Why? Because of the power of Christ and the spirit of faith that drives us to the glory of God seen in the face of Christ. And so that way God gets all the glory. He not only made it so that he would get all the glory by saving people, but he even made the process through which he is saving people completely unlikable to the human spirit, to human flesh. Humans don't want anything to do with persecution and being stoned and being hated. Nobody would ever sign up for that. And yet we do, and yet they did, because the power of God drives us, instructs us, teaches us, and brings us along because he decided before the foundation of the world that he was going to choose us, that he was going to call us, that he wrote our names down in the Lamb's Book of Life and then brought us through the process of dying to ourselves so that Christ would live within us so that all the glory would go to God. That's a brilliant plan. It is. I mean, that... That's God thinking in ways that no human would ever think. It's one of the reasons that I am convinced that men did not make up this Bible. Because if you were just making up a religion, you wouldn't come up with this one. You would not decide that you were going to preach a God who causes people to go through the dying of themselves and the suffering and the persecution so that they would come to an end of themselves in their own flesh so that all the glory of their life would be in the life of Christ and the glory of God. You would never create such a thing. Instead, you'd create something like kill the infidels. That you can do. That, that feels good to you. Yes, everyone who doesn't agree with me, I kill you. I kill you. <laughs> I knew some of you were thinking that. I knew it. So death works in us, but life in you. But having the same spirit of faith, according to what is written, I believed, therefore I spoke. We also believe, therefore also we speak, 
knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and will present us with you. That's why we don't lose heart. That's why we keep going. That's exactly the root of the whole thing. Because regardless of the difficulties of this life, regardless of our enemies, regardless of the people who persecute us, regardless of the people who tell us to shut up and go away, we have this abiding hope that comes to us by the spirit of faith. The spirit of faith given from God, put in us, gives us the faith and the confidence to go forward in this life despite the persecution, despite the people who don't want to hear it. We keep going because we know that one day... The very power of God that raised Jesus from the grave. Okay, that's the sign and insignia. That is the core and central issue of all Christianity. Jesus got up from the dead. That's a powerful reality. Jesus got up out of the grave. The power of God was at work in that moment raising Jesus from the grave. And he said that same power that raised Christ from the grave is going to raise you up out of the grave. So really, how much do you care about what this mortal body does while it's decaying? And sure, it's painful sometimes and and everything else, but it's going to the dust. And then ultimately, the very power of God, not the power of you, the very power of God is going to invade your grave, is going to reconstruct you in ways I can't even imagine, and is going to bring you up glorified and perfected and take you to live eternally in the glory that only God deserves to live within. And that's the reason we don't give up. That's the reason we keep going. Knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and will present us with you. For all things, this sounds very much like what Micah read this morning. And by the way, Micah and I did not coordinate. He just chose to read that. But it's, it's very parallel to what we're talking about here. For all things are for your sakes, that the grace which is spreading to more and more people may cause the giving of thanks to abound to the glory of God. Okay, there it is again. God is doing everything for his own glory, for his own purposes. And he is saving people through the preaching of his gospel. And the reason that he is saving them And that he's bringing grace and mercy upon them. is so that it will spread to more and more people. So that more and more people do what? So that more and more people feel self-sufficient. So that more and more people can say, yay for our group. So that more and more people can say, we're the right denomination and you're the wrong denomination. Why is he spreading the reality to more and more people? Why is he saving men? For one reason only, so that more people may thank God and that it may abound to the glory of God. That's why he's doing stuff. I can simplify all this. God is in the enterprise of glorifying himself. That's this whole message. God is in the enterprise of glorifying himself. Whatever he does, 
whatever he is pleased to do, whatever he has chosen to do, ultimately redounds to the glory of God. And if you know that, if you know that's what God is doing, shouldn't you be on God's side and be doing that with him? Why would you resist such a thing? God is glorifying himself in the way that he is taking you, a cracked pot, an earthen vessel, in the way that he has put his mercy in you and his grace in you and his spirit of faith and has revealed to you the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. He has done all of that so that once you recognize it, once you realize it, you will give thanks to God and your thanksgiving, your praise, your worship of God redounds back to the glory of God and that's the reason he did any of it in the first place. It's all for the glory of God. So, you have to suffer along the way? You're going to be persecuted along the way? Sure. But that doesn't mean God's abandoned you. That means God's doing what only God can do. He's taking you through the process of giving up on yourself and looking completely to him. Okay, be honest. When do you cry out to God more? I've asked this question so many times. But it's just universally true. When do you cry out to God more? When you're happy? When everything's going good? Get up every day, feel great. I feel healthy. Take on the world, self-made man. That's not when you're crying to God. Let God throw a sickness on you. Or let him destroy you financially. Or let him take away one of your loved ones. What do you do? You cry to God. Why? Because there's no place else to go. There's nobody else that can help. There's nobody else who, who can understand and give you the ability to get through it with your faith intact. He's going to be merciful to you. He's going to be gracious to you. And he's going to draw you to himself. And the process that he uses for drawing you to himself is the suffering, is the persecution, is the trial, because he knows that you're egocentric enough that you're not going to come crying to him if it's all good. We think that we'd like our lives to just go great all the time. We think that we'd like to win the lottery daily and that everybody we ever met thought wonderful things about us, just thinks we're a handful of aces. And everywhere we go, people just say, you're so funny and likable. And, and that we'd have perfect health until the day we die. And that we'd even die healthy. That's the way we think. But that's not the way it works. Because if that happens, God knows that you'll think it's you. You'll become self-sufficient. You'll start thinking, look at me go. I have an uncle who is still alive who's never been sick a day in his life. And do you know what he concluded? That sickness is a state of mind and he just wouldn't give in to it. Yeah. He's got a twisted concept of what sickness is all about just because he never had to go through it. 
God knows that you have to go through the trials, you have to go through the persecution, you have to go through the difficulties that come with this earthen vessel so that you will look to him, so that when he delivers you and takes you through it, you will give all the glory, all the praise, and all the thanksgiving to him and will take none of that credit yourself. That's why he's doing it the way he's doing it. So the next time you go through trouble, trial, persecution, there is no temptation taken you but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will, with the temptation, provide the way of escape so that you may be able to bear it. In other words, the problems, the troubles, the trials of this life, whatever you're enduring right now, whatever you're going through, it's on purpose because God chose to take you through that because he decided that was the method he was going to use to get you to praise, worship, glorify, thank him. And I think everybody in this room can agree it works. It works. It works 100% of the time. And that's why he does it that way. All right. So for all things are for your sake, that the grace which is spreading to more and more people may cause the giving of thanks to abound to the glory of God. Therefore, we do not lose heart. That's where I began. That's where this chapter kind of wraps up. Therefore, therefore we do not lose heart. Why? Because the grace of God is spreading to more and more people. More and more people are giving thanks. More and more people are abounding to the glory of God because God has taken them through the persecution and been faithful to them, given them the spirit. They've seen the glory of God in the face of Christ and for all those reasons, including our hope of our glorious future and what God is going to do when he exercises the power that he used to raise Christ from the dead, when he raises us up from the dead and then presents us with Christ, with all the saints, to the glory of God, why would you give up? We don't lose heart. We keep hanging on. We keep persevering because we know that this is all to the glory of God and not to the glory of us. Look, if it was to the glory of you, you'd have given up a long time ago. If there was nothing to this life, if you could convince me that there was no God that there's no judgment, that there's no heaven, and that when you die, you just go to the blackness. I'd have killed myself a long time ago, and I'd have taken several people out with me. Because <laughs> why not? There's no judgment. Nothing bad happens. You just die and you go to the darkness. I'd take several people out just mercifully. You just think, hey, you know, your life is tough. Bang. But admit it, you would too. But why do we have hope? Because God has put that hope within us because we know that there is a heaven, there is a glory, there is an eternal future. How do we know that? What's the proof positive? How do we know that? Well, we have the down payment. We have the surety. We have the Holy Spirit of God. And the way I know we have the Holy Spirit of God is you could be anywhere doing anything right now. But you're here reading the Bible, thinking about the things of God, singing to him, worshiping, praising God. Well, you're not naturally going to do that. That's the Spirit of God 
who has inhabited you and is drawing you to the things of God. Therefore, since we have that deposit, since we have that surety, we know that we have all the rest of it. And if we know that we have all the rest of it and all the rest of it is glorious and all the rest of it is true and marvelous and we have an eternity with God to look forward to and we're going to be presented before God with Christ and all the saints. And if we know all that about ourselves, why give up? Why quit? Why lose heart? Therefore, we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying. Anybody here want to testify about their decaying outer man? (laughs) Don't have enough time. Though our outer man is decaying, yet the inner man is being renewed day by day. And I think it's axiomatic. I think it proves itself. I have seen people in desperate straits. I have visited with people who were horribly sick. I have seen people lose everything. And yet they're renewed. And yet they talk about the goodness of God. Kind of like Job saying, though he slay me, yet I'll trust him. That's supernatural. That's not human. That's not flesh. That's the spirit of God inhabiting people and making them recognize his goodness and his glory despite our circumstances. Therefore, we do not lose heart. But though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. Renewed day by day. Why is it renewed day by day? Wouldn't one renewal be sufficient? No, it's because you need to be renewed every day. Sufficient for the day is the trouble thereof. That's what Jesus said. Every day you're going to need to be renewed. Because every day new persecution's coming. New trials are coming. New pain is coming. You might just be going through your silly little life and everything's fine and you feel good and, and you're real happy and, and you're just having a good day like I was having on Wednesday. I got up feeling great. I should have stayed in bed. <laughs> no, I got up Wednesday feeling great, taking on the world, feeling good, healthy. Look at me, 61 and still going, yeah, <laughs> I'm a man. Which part of that did you laugh at? It's home, that's all. <laughs> and like a man, I jumped up on that ottoman to kill that nasty wasp. How dare you be in my sunroom? And then I end up laying on the ground crying out to God. That's why he has to renew us every day. Day by day, inwardly being renewed so that we're ready for whatever this day brings us. Whatever the troubles, whatever the trials, we're able to endure it because we're being renewed day by day. Look at verse 17. For this momentary light affliction. Look at how he figured his his troubles, his trials, his jailings, his beatings, his stonings, his hunger. He said, this momentary light affliction. I don't know that I could write that. But look at the second half of the sentence. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory 
far beyond all comparison. That's everything I've been saying this morning. I could have just read that verse and said bye-bye and we could have all gone home. He's saying that we're going to go through affliction. We're going to go through difficulty. But look what it's doing. It's producing for us the eternal weight of glory that's far beyond all comparison. You can't begin to compare the glory of heaven to the afflictions of this world. The afflictions of this world don't begin to compare to what God has in mind for you. And how is he going to get you to that eternal glory? Through these light afflictions. I would never have thought of that. It's the brilliance of God. It's the, the intimate, deep knowledge of God, knowing what we humans are like. He knows us better than we know ourselves, and he knows that these afflictions are what it takes to get us to heaven. For this momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things that are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal. That's true. This world is decaying and waxing old, and one day it's all going to burn, according to Peter. And we spend all our time worrying about the stuff that's going to burn. The reality is the unseen things are the important things. The things that are seen are temporal, temporary. They're only going to be here for a while. The things which are not seen are eternal. So we've got eternal life. We've got the eternal promise. We've got the covenant with God that is based in the blood of his own beloved son. We have the promise of God as surety, his spirit within us. And we have the hope of glory found in the face of Jesus Christ. So don't give up. That's the point. Don't lose heart. And you know what? As much as I admonish you, don't give up and don't lose heart, I'm confident you won't because it's not you doing it. If I was just talking to your flesh and saying, don't give up, then I have no confidence. I have no confidence in anybody in this room that they could endure the affliction and keep going. Some people, the affliction comes along and they, they give up. And they quit their Christianity and they go away and find something else to do with their lives. But the true, genuine, blood-bought, redeemed body of Christ will never give up, never lose heart, because we know what the world does not know, which is that this world is temporal. This world is not where we're going to be forever. We're going to be on the new heaven and the new earth and the new Jerusalem. That's the stuff we're looking forward to. It's not here now. It's invisible to us. We can't see it now, but these are the things that give us the hope and the confidence to keep going. You got it? Got it. Tom's got it. Anybody else got it? Yeah. Oh, good. I'm glad to hear that. Questions about that? It's pretty clear, isn't it? I mean, it seems, yes, sir. That the, uh, the two are, are not worthy or cannot be compared because they are 100% polar opposite. You have momentary light affliction, and then the opposite description, momentary eternal light weight of glory. So every, each word is 100% opposite. Every word is opposite, Absolutely. Light and heavy. Right. 
Yep. Affliction and glory. And Afflictions and glory. glory. Yep. And momentary and eternal. Yeah. Yeah. That's pretty good. It's pretty good. <laughs> it's great writing. Okay. It's great writing. Anything else? All right. Say goodbye to the internet congregation. Bye. 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 Thank you for listening to this Sunday morning message from Grace Christian Assembly. Please visit our website at salvationbygrace.org and join us next time when we gather around the Word and study God's sovereign grace.